The following program is part of the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations China podcast series. For more information on the National Committee, visit us at www.ncuscr.org or connect with us on Twitter, Facebook, or Weibo. Good afternoon. This is Steve Orleans, President of the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations, and today I am joined by Scott Kennedy, who is Deputy Director of China Studies at the Center for Strategic and International Studies, known to us as CSIS. He is also, I should note, uh, part of the second cohort of our public intellectuals program, and I would say is doing exactly what we hoped our public intellectuals would do. He has recently come out with a, I guess we would call it a pamphlet, uh, called The Fat Tech Dragon, Benchmarking China's Innovation Drive, which is available, Scott, on CSIS's website? Indeed it is. And it's CSIS.org? Yes, CSIS.org. Great. Well, this is a data-driven, fascinating study, and it's really, I think, a must-read for anyone who is looking at China, because it really contains tons of data. First, tell us what made you kind of think about doing this kind of study, UNCSIS. Sure. Well, uh, Steve, thanks for uh, having me uh, to the National Committee and participating in the podcast series. Uh, and uh, my experience uh, in the PIP program has uh, been instrumental in me deciding to uh, spend a lot more time working on public policy issues in U.S.-China relations, including uh, high-tech questions. So. Uh, first, just just thanks a bunch. And as was our trip together with a bunch of congressmen. That's right. That's right. Uh, I remember uh, every mile of that. Uh, so um, I guess uh, there are a few things that, that spurred this. Uh, the first is uh, there is a lot of uh, hype about China in, in Washington. Uh, good hype, bad hype. Uh, and one of the areas that people are focusing on is China's high-tech drive. But in Washington, the big question that most ask is, is China complying with its legal commitments as it moves up the value-added chain? Not what a question that they should be asking in addition to that, which is, is China's efforts, are they working? Are they leading to more technological innovation? Are they, is it shape, reshaping markets? Is it going to be beneficial for societies in China and elsewhere? Uh, and so that question has been asked generally, but not with enough specificity uh, and or uh, providing a broad answer. So that's what we wanted to do. Um, in addition, we're just really uh, curious uh, because it's vitally important. The direction of China's economy uh, will affect the rest of the world's economy. And there's big questions about the efficiency of China's economy and whether its high-tech drive will make the economy more efficient um, and be a benefit to others or whether it will have a detrimental effect. So we're worried not just about measuring progress in this high-tech drive itself, but what it means for the rest of the economy and for everybody else. You, your conclusion is, I'm not giving anything away, it's a mixed picture. There are areas of success, there are areas of failure, the metrics are uh, almost all over the place, some suggesting success, some suggesting failure. Tell us about those metrics and then tell us what conclusions that should lead to for U.S. policy. Sure. Um, well, I think that the overall conclusion is captured in the title. Hopefully uh, everyone kind of gets what the, the, 
the fat tech dragon means. We didn't call it the fat tech panda because pandas are supposed to be chubby and cuddly. Uh, dragons are, are not. Uh, and so uh, it, it, what it suggests is, yes, China is moving up the value added chain. It's innovating in lots of places, but it's doing so in a very inefficient way broadly. There's variation across sectors, but that's the, the overall story is that it's success, but this is a low metabolism dragon that needs to, uh, that is not doing as well as efficiently as, as it could. And um, our basic metrics where we start are looking at these broad indices of innovation which have been developed globally that help us put China in comparative perspective. These indices haven't been around very long. The, the, the longest tenured one called the Global Innovation Index is, is just about nine or 10 years old. It's put out by a triumvirate of groups, the World Intellectual Property Organization, INSEAD, which is a business school in Paris, and uh, Cornell University uh, here in New York. Um, the, um, the, these indices, um, again, have differences in how they measure. Uh, some are better than others. Uh, we, folk, we end up saying that the Global Innovation Index is the best because it's got 103 different indicators. It looks at both inputs and outputs. It's got physical measures. It's got um, measures of, of judgments. Um, and it shows that uh, China is gradually improving uh, in its innovation capacity. Uh, and that it is separating itself from uh, other large emerging economies, uh, uh, Russia, India, Brazil. Uh, and it is approaching, in terms of levels of innovation, the United States, Korea, Japan. Not quite there yet. There's still some distance. But that separation from the pack is, is quite remarkable. Um, on the other hand, the data also show that there's great deals of inefficiency uh, in terms of how much China gets out based on what it puts into uh, the system. I can talk more about that if you're interested. If it's, I mean, you talk a lot about the inefficiency, inefficiencies. You talk about state intervention in this sector and how it doesn't necessarily yield positive results. If that's the case, as talking about not corporate policy, but sure. U.S. government policy, should we just sit on our hands? They want to waste their money? Go ahead. Um, uh, the U.S. needs to do something. Um, and, and, and so do others, and the Chinese government as well. Um, I mean, you, c you can make an argument that what they're doing in the long run, way down the road, uh, they will benefit because they'll change business models and technologies will move from um, you know, fossil fuels to renewables uh, based on Chinese cheap, uh, a lot of spending for, for these technologies. But on the other hand, uh, these are, uh, because of China's size, um, it's the consequences for everyone else are, are quite large. Uh, if, it, if it were Chile or Kenya or uh, a small country, it really wouldn't matter. Yes, we'd lose access, lose some market access in those countries, uh, but for the most part, it'd just be a small chain, you know, move of the of the needle. But China's a big market, and China's also playing in global markets. So, from a perspective of American companies. And if you think production, you know, having American capacity in high tech matters in many of these areas, then we need to challenge China, not just uh, with penalties, but in a variety of different ways, uh, to get them to, to not just follow rules, but see that it's in their interest to be more efficient. Um, if China does to semiconductors what it has done to the steel industry, for example, that will eliminate profitability in the semiconductor industry, 
hurt uh, our ability to do R&D and innovate for future generations of technology. There hasn't been much technological innovation in steel making. Yes. A, can you really That's, make a comparison to semiconductors <clears throat> where yeah. you know, each 18 months you see a revolution? Yeah. Uh, where the Chinese are uh, moving into these markets are in the commodified parts of those spaces. Mm -hmm. And where that's but has been generally really 36 profitable. Thirty-six months, but thirty-six months later, there. Yeah. yeah, but but good enough. Uh, but if you look at uh, solar, wind, I'm now part of this story is looking at electric vehicles. Um, if China, if if China just if China dominates every commodified sector, then that's the sector. That's part of the industries which are profitable that then yield money for R and D. So yes, they don't compete at the very top. Uh, but those at the very top will have less income to continue to push out uh, the technological frontier. So that, that's the longer-term anxiety about it. There's some areas but where... Yes, yeah. Intel, Cisco, Apple agree with you? Uh, certainly, uh, that th these are, are big challenges. Uh, Even though they're generating billions and billions from the China market. Yes, yes. So, I mean... Um, Certainly, yes, China is a, a big consumer, um, and it's also a big producer. So in some ways, companies are torn, and that's why companies have different views about how to um, you know, deal with this challenge. Some just say, well, let's um, just go along to get along with the Chinese because the market there is so big for us and for others. Others say, well, let's try and just sort of marginally push the Chinese, and others say, Let's tackle it more head-on. Let's use trade remedies, American, uh, let's limit Chinese investment in the United States. Let's get others to gang up on China. I don't know which is the, the perfect answer. I think actually you need kind of an all-of-the-above approach uh, to deal with this because China is such a, a significant player in the global stage and the U.S. alone can't do very much effectively, even though they can do a lot, but not necessarily be effective. Uh, of course, I also don't want to give the impression that everything China is doing in tech is simply throwing money uh, down a bottomless pit and uh, leading to dumping. There's actually genuine technological innovations and interesting things going on in China. So it's a matter of figuring out how to uh, get the best out of the system. And I think it really, my interest in, in the China case as opposed to others is the, the size of China, the scale and what it means for, for global markets. So it's not uh, that if, if you put China next to another country and just compared what they were doing in terms of compliance, there may not be lots of differences, but the scale of China means that what it does has more implications for everybody else. Talk about the, you talk a lot in the article about the role of the private sector. Um, talk some about that and how that relates to what the public sector is doing, what the government is doing. Sure. Actually, um, in many of these spaces, these are private Chinese companies. And private Chinese companies tend to be more efficient, take more risks, be more entrepreneurial. And I've come across some really fascinating companies that are doing some, some very cool stuff. Um, uh, at the same time, private Chinese companies are also lining up for uh, financing for R&D and markets from the Ministry of Science and Technology, the National Development Reform Commission, their local governments. Um, are those just grants? Uh, some, some of them are grants, some of them are loans, some of them are loans that will never be required to be paid back. Um, and so there's definitely, a, 
you know, these are, you know, being treated as infant industries where there's a, for some companies, their business model is to get the government funding and that's whether there's a product that comes out at the end is, is secondary. Uh, of course, that's not, this is not for everybody, but so everyone is sort of tied into that ecosystem, whether they're, they're state or private. Um, and the Chinese government in a basically... a lot of ways, we shouldn't care about that. If they want to throw away their money, okay. Yeah, I guess if it tends, that if, if um, it affects the profitability and the, and the uh, supply chains of the sectors, uh, then that matters to us. So it's not just the fact that we're watching a fire on another shore and, and just sort of let them burn, um, which is not, not, not the case. They, they can do this for a long time. China's got lots of savings. Uh, they, they're not going to give this up anytime soon. Uh, and, you know, if you care about the, 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 the nature of the supply chains, uh, then I think that we want to make the Chinese, we th I think it's in the Chinese interest to, to do this more efficiently. Um, and uh, the competition is good for China. It's not that not only do Americans want competition from Chinese companies, China's benefits when they're, they're part of a global competitive marketplace as well. So, and I think many of these areas are new. Uh, they're exciting. A lot of, you know, uh, the things that I find, like for example, in the internet space, uh, where there's been a lot of success, and I think the ratio re investment to return is relatively high. It's the most competitive space in China. Uh, the, even though, you know, you talk about cloud services in some places because of the great firewall, there's not as much access. But broadly, in e-commerce, in, in certain kinds of social media, online sales, um, many different uh, performance, online performance, there's lots of, so many different interesting things going on. And then in some places, I think you have to scratch your head and say, you know, why does China think it needs its own commercial airliner? Um, does is that make is that good for China? It may be good for Comac, or and the companies right in that supply chain in China. But is that good quest? Is that a good thing for China to do? Um, why don't they might be able to better mobilize their national resources, buying Boeing and Airbus planes, and do investing in other things? So yeah. How does this forced technology transfer work in practice? Mm -hmm. Give me an example of, give our listeners an example of how that, how that works. Yeah, there's, um, this is uh, a, obviously a hot button issue because the uh, U.S. Trade Representative has launched this investigation right. into uh, intellectual property rights, including the question of uh, forced technology transfer. They're having a hearing uh, on uh, Tuesday, October 10th, which I've lucky enough to get to participate in um, and the I guess you know there's a varieties of different types of tech transfer in China between multinationals and their Chinese partners some of it is just simply what two business partners would voluntarily do with each other I'm talking and, about forced but, but forced. forced but forced I think for most of that it is uh, if you want market access in this sector uh, we uh, we need to you need to share your technology of how of the backbone of this specific thing or how it's manufactured. Like what? What it would be an example? So I'd, uh, I'm not going to mention any individual companies, uh, but in in the auto sector, in telecom, uh, those are th uh, in medical equipment. Those are things that have definitely occurred. Um, and the way the Chinese are able to do that is simply that they have the ability to keep their market open or closed. Um, and so, and 
nationally and in uh, certain provinces. And I think the the, lo the lower you go in the government and the more regional you go, the more ministry, then you'll get specific requests, uh, which are sometimes extremely direct about the, the types of technologies that, that they're looking for. But, but, but yeah. those, are those transferred to a, to a joint venture? Uh, in some cases, yeah. And, uh, in, and so they're basically saying, yeah, we want the best technology because we want the best product in order for you to sell in China. Um, sure. So now, and some does that get transferred then to other competing entities? So it, sometimes what happens is then the folks that work at that joint venture get up, go across the street, and open up their own company, or they sell the stuff, uh, or they're hired away into the Chinese state sector, uh, or other types of things. I think in China, there's so much, you know, uh, so much technology transfer, voluntary and involuntary that um, there's no way the Chinese could ever argue that there's significant limits on technology diffusion between advanced industrial economies and themselves. China's a much larger recipient of technologies than, than just about any other developing country. This has been a terrific discussion with Scott Kennedy, and I think it, anybody who's listened to this has to get the article, The Fat Tech Dragon, Benchmarking China's Innovation Drive, available on CSIS.org. Scott, thank you so much for writing the article and for joining us today. Happy to do so, and hopefully folks will find this one appealing and then look, at the, look for the other six reports on the different industries that we'll have coming out over the next year. Great. Thanks.